Okay, we are in the book of 1 John. We're going on to chapter 3 of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. And uh, you look at if you look at uh, people that write about this, commentators, they'll say, "Well, uh, John is mystic. He's mystical. What does that mean to be mystical?" Well, uh, the Bible is written in different ways, and when you come to the uh, writings of Paul, he's is a very logical approach. It's like he's a lawyer. And that's actually what he was. He was a lawyer. And he wrote, like, here's a case, and here's the evidence, these are the facts, and this is the conclusion. And we kind of like that way of thinking, don't we? Because it says, well, here it goes, logical, reasonable, come to the conclusion. And that's kind of the way the Western world has tended to think. Uh, John's writing is not like that. <clears throat> and they call it mystical, which if you looked it up in a dictionary, it means there's some deep spiritual experience of a mystic. And he's trying to uh, explain his uh, experiences. Well, it's kind of true. After all, uh, John walked with Jesus. John talked with Jesus. John put his head on Jesus' chest. And so there was a very close relationship there. And he's had something that not many people had in the history of the world. He was right there with Jesus. And so uh, he has had a unique spiritual experience. But I would say uh, what he's trying to do is get us to think in concepts. We have concepts certain ideas and enlarge on those ideas and in so doing change the way you think. Right. We're going to change the way you think as we take these concepts. Let's see if you can grasp a whole concept, take it into your mind and let it be a different way of thought than you would normally get by reading. Normally Here's the answer to the, here's the question, here's the answer, here's the evidence, here's the logic, here's the fact. Now you know what it means. But that's not what he's doing. He's uh, saying, let's think about this in a larger way. I want you to grasp larger concepts. And one of the concepts that he tried to drill into us is family. I want you to think in the concept of family. And that's not the way we normally think when we think about God. We just don't do that. And so uh, he's going to try to encourage us to do that a little bit more tonight. And we're going to think about it here because I think if we can put our minds to it, it might really have a, a change on the way you perceive God, and the way you talk to God, and the way you act with God. And so, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, behold, he starts with, hey, look, <laughs> surprise, I want to show you something, this is a surprise, you'll never guess, wait till you see this, is what he's saying. 
Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. He says, there's this family thing again. Uh, why, he says, did God decide? What was there? What kind of attributing God? What was the, the attitude of God when he said, I'm going to make them my children? I'm going to make them like my children. And family is a is a very uh, concept that we sort of live with, may not think about that much. But we have knowledge of our families. We know our families. We have an, uh, an intimate uh, family knowledge. And there's little things about families. And what I'm always looking for in my family is who's like who. All right. How, I look at some little grandkid and I say, no, who do they take after? How do they think? What do they do? And it's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, my great-grandfather was a preacher. And over the years, uh, you look at the, the offspring, me, my nephews, two of my nephews went into preaching, uh, you know, and you think, well, it seems to kind of run in the family, the family thing. On the other side, my mother's side, they were literary people. Uh, they were uh, editors of magazines. Okay? They were verbal. And then along comes some little two-year-old and talks like an adult, be Adeline. He's got bigger words than I do. Sit there and talk like an adult. So how'd she get to be verbal like that? Well, it runs in a family. Somewhere in a family. And you're always looking at kids and seeing who's going to be like who. Uh, 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 Gideon comes along with a little tiny smile on his face. And we look at him and we say, that's my father's smile on his face. He just got that thing. You look at him, the first thing you say. Now, you would never know that. You'd look at Gideon and say, oh. But when you're in a family, and you see these things, and you're looking for family traits in the family, he's got that little smile that's Odie, my father's smile. I remember we were all walking down the driveway, a whole group of us, and I looked over, and Gideon's over wandering through the bushes. He's over here by himself, wandering through the... Well, that's my father. That's exactly what my father would do. My father did it all the time. He's always wandering through the bushes, wandering around. And Gideon does the same thing. Uh, funny things show up. My brother was a collector. and he, We used to go and look for arrowheads. And I would search and search and search and never find nothing. He'd come out with two or three every time. He'd just turn over that rock, and I turned over a hundred rocks. I didn't find any. He'd find one here, one there, and he just looked and looked at the ground, and he found things and collected them. He had all kinds of collections. Arrowhead was a big collection because he found them over and over and over again. How did he get to be that way? Well, Natalia, Levi's daughter, is that way. She runs around. I'd see her looking at the ground. It looks just like my brother. She's looking, digging around there. There's nothing down there. And she comes up with a little piece of pottery, you know, something that she collects. <clears throat> How's it come that these family traits go on and on like that? Well, that's an interesting thing, I think. And within the family, 
we know each other in a family, and so we can recognize these traits. And we say, well, our family does it. What's it like to grow up in a house uh, with a Norwegian? <laughs> You've heard me describe that sometimes. You've heard me explain that. Uh, you didn't know my father, but I try to explain to you what it was like to grow up in a house like that and sit around the table and have him say, uh, we do not conform. We will not conform. You know, and that's, that's the kind of family dynamic. And so there's a family dynamic that we all have within our own family. Now, God says, I'm going to make a family. And I'm going to put in that family, just like in every family, a dynamic. There's going to be a way that people think and a way that people behave. There's going to be certain behaviors that are going to pass through the family. And he says, I want you to get that concept in your mind that uh, God decided to make us a family. Behold, what kind of love, he said, did God bestow on us that we should be called the sons of God? This is an amazing thing, he said. He's put these likenesses and these habits and these attitudes and these certain abilities in his family as God's family. And he's trying to uh, help us to see now that when we have a relationship with God, it's not just, I just pray to somebody up there, whoever he is, I call him God. That's not what it is. There's a relationship between us, and then there are family uh, ties, and there are things that we are going to learn and know about God. And so he says here in verse 1, Behold what manner of love Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. It's an amazing concept. God has turned us into a family, therefore the world knoweth us not. All right. If I took you and my family and I said, uh, uh, who's that young person like? He said, I don't know. Well, I know. I know that Bree's a copy of Grandma. Okay? <laughs> She's a carbon copy of Grandma. All right? And that's okay. We'll take it. We're happy for that. All right? But th- you wouldn't know that. You say, well, you come in. Well, who's. And he said, the outside world looks at us. So we don't get all the connections says, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Right, so when uh, outsiders, people who don't believe, come into the church, they look at it and say, I don't get it. And I've seen it, I can't tell you how many times have people come in, sit down, and just, you can say, they're a fish out of water. And they come along and they say, those people seem to be happy. <laughs> That's a family. There's a family happiness. And I think East Shelby has been a real display of a family happiness. And the world says, well, we, we, don't, we don't know what to look for, what kind of things are like. The world doesn't know. It doesn't grasp how the family dynamic works. And so they come in and say, well, we, we didn't know Jesus and we didn't know who he was and what he was like. And so when we look at the church, we don't know who they're like either. All right. And so uh, here's, let's go on. Beloved, verse 2, now we are the sons of God. He says, okay, you're already there. You're in the family. Doth not yet appear what we shall be. All right. So 
as part of this family, you're going to grow up and we're going to develop and grow up. And as part of the family, we're going to grow up. And he says, I don't know yet what we're going to end up to be like. But we know that when he shall appear, uh, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And suddenly he said, the Lord will come and appear on earth. And we'll say, I can tell. I know who he is. I know who he is. He, he's here and he says when he comes, he's going to change us into something else, something new. And so that's a pretty wonderful thing. Whatever happens when Jesus comes or when we go to him, he's going to change us over into something else. So in the future, we're developing as members of this family. And in the future, we're going to take a big step forward and be grown up members of this family. And what do you think God's trying to communicate this idea all the time? What does he call the first final or the final end of time and the first party in heaven? The wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a big family party. All right. And he says we're going to be united in a family way. And he said, that's the first thing when we get to heaven. He says, we have one great, big, huge party, uh, just like somebody got married. Well, that's what <laughs> God likes the idea. He's trying to communicate the idea that we have within us these traits. And as we let them develop and grow these traits, he says, eventually we will look just like him. Look, I look in the mirror and I see that's an Olsen standing there. Now before I didn't know. I remember when I was a young fellow I was going to do a, a skit. And so I put white on my hair and I got all white and I looked in the mirror. That's my grandfather standing there. I never saw myself with white hair before. Now I look at it all every day, okay? But, but uh there's a resemblance, and as we grow older and mature, that resemblance becomes more and more obvious. And he says, this is going to happen to us, that Jesus is going to come to earth, and you're going to be part of that family, and the resemblance is going to be striking. It's going to be striking, and you'll begin to see what you were meant to be. All that you could have ever been what you were meant to be and what you're going to be as part of this family as you carry these traits into the future. So he said, wow, what kind of love decided that we should be like him? Well, that's a wonderful thing. So, verse 3, every man that has this hope in him, if you're thinking to yourself, I'm part of the family, this is great, and I'm going to be more and more like him as time goes by. If you have that hope, he purifies himself, even as he, or Jesus, is pure. And so, as we look into the future as part of this family, we're going to look into the future. What are you going to say? Well, I'm going to be like him, so I've got to kind of get a few things fixed up. He says he purifies himself, or that is, we've got to get rid of this stain that's on us, which is sin, he says. And so one of the things that people who grasp the concept of what he's trying to say to us here, when you grasp that concept, you say, well, you know what? I better get, kind of get going. Get working on this. 
and uh, the things that are my weaknesses and the things that I do wrong and my bad habits and my bad attitudes, I got to get rid of them. They got to go. I got to work on being like Jesus. And he's going to go on to tell us more about that, what we got to work on and how we work on it. <clears throat> All right. But his concept is very uh, striking here. He says, uh, here's God. And you're going to be like him. He's going to come and you're going to see him in all of what he is. And it's really going to have an impact on you. And we're going to look at somebody and say, you know, that person, Jesus, that's what Jesus does. And there'll be different things for us. There'll be some people who say, that person was so patient and kind. That's just, just like Jesus. Some people will come and they'll be so full of energy and vitality. And say, ah, yeah, he's like, that's the way he's like Jesus. And we're going to see the family resemblances in various people. And so we're all going to go there and be part of that wonderful family. So he says, if you realize what you're doing and you're heading into the future with a hope that that's going to be true for you, then he says, clean your act up. Work on that. You know, that's something you can work on now. You can begin to work on those things and learn to mouth when you need to. And learn not to say what just comes into your head. And learn those things so that we develop and uh, get our act together. Okay? So... That's how he starts, and that's why he says, behold, he said, look at this. <laughs> Can you imagine? We're in this family, and those resemblances are going to come out more and more. Now, we'll get to a, a, a concept that he wants us to grasp. And it's the one he just mentioned. He says, clean up your act, or we got a problem. Our problem is sin. All right, here we go, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And so he says, here's the real problem we have, sin. He says, God's made laws. It's just a moral code you know, if we were left to our own, ourselves, we'd say, eh, there's no moral code. We can kill anybody we want. And we kind of got there partially in society, didn't we? Because we can kill babies all we want. Kill as many as we want, as many, hundreds of them, thousands of them. It's okay. They can even deliver them on the table and, and decide whether we're going to kill them or not. I mean, you think, what, are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. That's the way uh, it, this goes. Sin is says, God said, don't. Right? And when you say, no, I am going to do, then you're in rebellion. And to me, uh, the word that goes along with sin and perfectly describes it is rebellion. Right? He said, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree. That's it. One rule. One rule in the whole garden. What do they do? I'm going to eat that tree. And the Bible says that Eve was deceived. Or Satan came along and said, Yeah, God didn't mean what he said. When you eat that, you're going to be brilliant. You'll be just like God. She said, ah, I want that. 
right? And then Adam came up. He said he was not deceived. Or he walked up to that apple and said, I don't care what God said. I'm going to eat this apple. And he sat right there and ate it in defiance of God's law. And so that defiance and that rebellion is part of the human experience. It is what separates us from God. All right? And so sin is what separates. And that's why we've got to talk about sin. And so he's going to tie a bunch of thoughts to this concept of sin. All right, here we go, verse 5. For you know that he, that is Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So let's start over here. He says, we got Jesus, and we'll talk about Jesus first and sin. And number one, he's going to take away sin. You're going to take away sin. So how are we going to ever get rid of it? Well, he's going to take it away. He's going to get rid of it. He's going to put it out of the way it'll be gone. He'll take away our sin. And number two, he says, Jesus also uh, did no sin. I talked about Sunday, the temptation of Jesus. And we say, well, is, is he being tempted like we are? Well, not really. I mean, he's not tempted to do sin. He never had sin in him. He was different than you and I that way. We were born with it, and he was not, and he had no sin. And so he says, you think about walking around having this experience with a person who never did anything wrong. Well, well. That's quite a thought, isn't it? What was it like when Jesus was growing up? Well, I can, we can just about tell in the Bible what it was like. His brothers and sisters who sinned and got their behind paddle or whatever they did in those days uh, didn't like it much. When Jesus got out and started to preach, they said, who does he think he is? We think he's beside himself, or we think he's a little cuckoo. He's not like us. He's out there preaching like he's somebody. He's not. He's just, you know, so within that family dynamic, all right, was that feeling that, all right, we don't know what to do with Jesus. And John says in his dynamic, was three and a half years walking and talking with Jesus, he said, uh, you couldn't help. You just knew that he never did anything wrong. Never did anything wrong. So verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither knows him. So he says, us, for people like us, we can put Christians, people who believe, or us, like that. Uh, for people like us, he said, uh, we are what? What does he say? He says, uh, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. So don't sin. Sin not. All right? And we talked about that the other day when we were beginning in John. Say, well, how can we say we can't sin? We're bound to, aren't we? Yeah. I think probably what you want to attach to this to grasp it is 
habitually. Don't make sin a habit. All right? He says we know that when we do sin, we have a place to be forgiven. We can talk to God and he'll forgive us. We know that's true. He said, but uh, we can't be habitual sinners and say that we know God. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him and neither known him. And so there are people who do not believe, and I'll just put people down here, and he says they do not believe, and of course they don't know God. They don't know the family. They're strangers to that family dynamic. And they don't know how that dynamic works. Right? And so, go on to verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So there's a family resemblance here. Jesus does right things. And you and I, if we've got our act together, all right, we're going to be able to be right, do things right. right. Get our life together, get your act together, and get get your life going in the right way and do things right. right. That's a good way to be. Verse number eight. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Whoa, wait a minute. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Alright, now down here we said there are people who didn't know the family. They didn't know God. And he said uh they have a family resemblance, and it's the devil. So we got the devil connected to sin here. He says he has always sinned right from the beginning, all the time. And then he says, but more than that, they're his children, or that he encourages them to sin. And that's where... The issue lies. He says the devil is encouraging people to sin. We want you to sin. You're going to be happy if you sin. It's exactly what he said to Eve. You're going to be much better off if you do this. You're going to be better off. And the devil encourages people to sin because from the beginning it says he rebelled. All right. And the Bible says, what did he do? He said, I'm going to set my throne up above God's. I'm going to be higher than God. I will be like God. I'm going to set my throne up to be like God. And, and it says he was cast down. You're not going to do that. But that was his rebellion. And now his rebellion is to take as many down with him as he can. He wants to take as many down with him as he can. And so he's very good at that. He's very good at convincing people, encouraging them to sin, taking them with them. Don't you, didn't you enjoy that? Come on, that was good, wasn't it? And so when Jesus is a stranger to people here, they don't know him. And the devil, he says, is their father. And he's encouraging them to sin. He said, Jesus came along to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. He's going to 
put an end to that enticement, that uh, uh, pull that Satan has on people to sin. He's going to take care. That's why he came and died on the cross. So verse 9, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now we have a concept that is very difficult to understand. People are arguing about it all the time. I hear arguments constantly on the radio about this very concept. And John brings it in to the idea now because he has an opinion about in this family thing. Uh, and, a, and what he, John says, you're born. Now look over at John 3. Gospel of John, chapter number 3. Gospel of John, chapter number 3. Enter into every family dynamic, the happy moment of families, and that's a birth. When a baby comes into the world, that's a happy thing. They all go and look at him and say, oh, he looks like, no, he don't. He's just like a bald-headed baby. Uh, he don't look like anybody. But he go, we're going to see it, look for it all the time, right, because he's part of the family. And so a birth is entering into a family. And John says, here's a concept that Jesus taught I want you to get. John chapter 3, of course, he's talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in verse 3. Jesus answered, said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus' question, I don't get it. What do you mean born? I can't go back inside of mom. Come out again. Once was enough. All right? So uh, I don't get what you're saying. And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. Right, so, Jesus, here's the concept. You're going to be born a brand new person. You're going to be a brand new person. And so, we are not trying to say, well, here's this old sinner. We'll patch him up. We'll scrub him up with a scrub brush. And we'll uh, clean his mouth out with soap. And we'll try to get him straightened out so he's okay. That's not what we're doing. All right? Jesus said, you've got to be born again. And he said, I don't get the concept. And he said, well, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's why we're all here. We were born of the flesh. We all know how we got here. Okay? But he said, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so here is the spirit of God. He says, you've got to be born of water and the spirit. We've got to be cleansed with water. We've got to be washed. Real, real good concept for the Jews because they washed all the time. A Pharisee, while he was eating a meal, might wash his hand ten times. And we do it once and we're good. Give me that food. Here I go. All right? Not them. You know, they'd stop, eat a little bit, stop, 
and they'd wash this way, you know, wash all the way down to the elbow, and then turn it upside down and wash it back down so that everything dripped off the end and eat a little more and do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, always washing, always washing. They'd go to the temple and wash. And it was the idea that sin was something we've got to get off of us. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to get rid of it. So he says we've got to have water. That doesn't mean you're born again when you go into water. It means we've got to wash sin, literally, spiritually speaking, because we're born of the Spirit. God puts in us a second person, a new man. That being that is born again in us doesn't sin. So we go back to 1 John, and that's what he's saying, 1 John, verse 9, whosoever is born of God, all right, this is what Jesus said back there, does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. He's got a DNA. All right, he's got a DNA. There's something in him, and that new person that's born doesn't sin. All right, he's got in him that which God put him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. So, say, so, okay, I'm born again. How come I sin? Well, that is the question that people are arguing. Now, John just said, and if John says, I'm more inclined to believe him than the guy on the radio. Okay? I'm more inclined to believe him. What he says is that when you accept God, he comes into your life, you become part of that family, all right, and you're born into the family. You have a birth into that family. And that new person that's there doesn't have sin. God didn't make you a sinner. You started out that way. So then why do we sin? Well, the concept is basically uh, that we have two natures. We have the new one that was just born of God, and there's no sin in that. And we have an old nature, and that's something that's in us. That's what we've got to overcome. And I like to always think of it as what they... What they uh, Bible said, Paul said, be crucified. I'm going to crucify the old man. And so there's this old man, our old nature, and we're going to crucify him. We're going to put his hands there and there and nail him there and say, now you can't do nothing with those hands. You can't move them. We're going to restrict your movement. We're going to restrict your ability to do whatever you think you want to do and nail your hands there. All right? And so your new man is saying, okay, I'm, as long as these hands can't do it, <laughs> I'm going to do all right. If you let this hand loose, it goes like that. It'll kill the new man as fast as he can. So the answer to it is we feed the new man. We give him strength. We come to Bible study. And we learn what God has to, for us. And we grasp the concepts, larger concepts, in our mind. And we understand those things. And we feed the new man. And we starve the old man. He's whispering in here, just do this. You're home by yourself. Nobody's going to see. And you say, no, no, no. I ain't going to do it. 
I'm going to starve you to death, all right? And I think that the Bible talks that way. Paul says, I have a struggle inside of me. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I wish I was doing, I don't. And Paul described that struggle. And I think that the overwhelming majority of intelligent people have accepted that concept. And so what John says, we had a new birth in this family, and that new nature doesn't sin. It's the old one that's powerful enough to entice us, make us do what we want, because we keep feeding them a little. We keep giving them a little more. And he said, that's the difference. Now, there are people, there's a guy who's a nighttime answer guy on the radio, Andrew Farley, Andrew Farley, he'll tell you that's not true. I've heard him say it over and over again. Oh, that's not true. You only, there's only one of you, and you're all set. If I'm all set, then why do I keep doing things wrong? Right? And so the, the explanation is that we have a new nature that doesn't sin, but we have this old one whispering in our ear, it's okay. You can do it. It ain't going to hurt this this time. And he keeps whispering in our ear. So he says, being part of his family, you're born. Have a birth, you're in the family. And he says, as being part of that family, you, that part doesn't sin. And so that's a pretty striking concept. So you have within you a person who won't sin. And then you have within you one that will. Who wins? Who wins most regularly? That's the habitual part when we talk about it. And so he's saying as part of this family, you have something in you that God put in you, a new birth, new person. And that person, if you take care of it, it won't sin. It'll help you. All right, and so verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteous is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. All right, so he says, what are the children of the devil like? Well, he says, uh, they do wrong. They do wrong, and he says, not only that, but they don't love others. You don't love. Love is not a part of the old nature. It's in the new nature. It's not in the old nature. He says and when they act like that, they don't love, uh, what do they do? Well, they hate. Here we go. Verse 11. For this is a message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so this, the, if we're strengthening the new man, and building him up, making him what he needs to be, he said, then you're going to naturally love one another. It's a family characteristic. As a matter of fact, it's probably the most striking family characteristic is that people love each other. That people enjoy each other for who they are. They don't criticize. They love each other. Not, verse 12, as Cain. Who was of that wicked one. Here's one of the children of the devil. And slew his brother. Cain killed Abel. All right. 
We had the first sin was they ate a, ate a piece of fruit. Next sin, it killed his brother. Second sin recorded is the man killed his own brother. I mean, obviously, there's no family tie there. Why? Because he came, he says it was a different family. I thought he was from Adam and Eve. Of course he was. That was that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But in Cain, there was no spirit of God in him. So he killed his brother and he said, wherefore slew he him? Why did he kill Abel? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. And you remember what it was. There was this offering. Time to make a sacrifice to God. And Abel did what his father Adam instructed him to do. You'll get a lamb. We're going to kill the lamb and offer it to God on a sacrifice. Cain brings a basket of potatoes, a few apples, and some cherries or whatever he grew, and sets them there. There, that's what I got for God. And of course, there's no blood in it. There's no blood and no ransom in it. And he was told differently, of course, by Adam. And how did Adam know? Because God killed an animal for Adam. That's how he got clothes for the first time. God killed an animal, made him clothes, said, put those on to cover up the sin. Clothing is a type of thing that covers up the sin. All right, and you're going to spill the blood. Of course, the future blood would be the blood of Christ. All right. So he said, Cain did that. So he killed his brother. Why? Because he was evil and his brother was righteous. And so even though they were earthly brothers, they certainly weren't uh, this, this family here because uh, Abel was doing right. All right. He was doing the right thing. And down here, Cain was one of the, he says, one of the devil's children. So verse 13, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Don't be surprised if the people who don't know God don't like you. Don't be surprised about that. Don't be surprised. You are going to be a thorn in their side when you do right, when you do good, when you love. When you share, when you do those kind of things, you're a thorn to them. Right? And they're not going to like you. So he said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Why? They're outside of the family and they don't know the family. And they don't get the connection that you have. All right? So that family is working real good as we go through this passage. Verse 14. We know we have passed from death into life because we love the brother. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Right? And so there's a new life that comes. Right? In the old nature there is sin, and the end of sin is death. All right? The soul that sinneth was the rule that God made from the beginning of time. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God's rule, one of the first ones he put out. You sin, you die. And so that soul, that old nature of ours, is nothing but death hanging on us and taking us over. So you're going to be born into the new life, all right? And we're going to pass from death into life up here. And what happens when we're born again? We get as a gift from God eternal life. Wow. That's a pretty good gift, huh? 
<laughs> I'm pretty happy about that. That's a pretty good gift, God. So I'm going to give you something. What do you got for me? How about eternal life? I'll take it. I'm happy for that. Give me more of that. I'll take as much of that as you Well, here, one dose, and it's good forever. So that's a wonderful thing. So we know that we have passed into eternal life. Proof of it, love. Well, love is a very powerful motive within our lives. 15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so Jesus said, hate is the root cause of murder. You know, some kids or some crazy people go out and they shoot a whole bunch of people. What are they doing it for? Well, they hate them. They don't like the people they worked with. They don't like people of a certain color. They don't like that they're going to go shoot a bunch of them. So there's a murderer. Hatred, next step is murder. All right? and Jesus said the same thing. If you hate your brother, it's the same as murder. All right? It is the driving force behind it. 16, hereby perceive we the love of God. How do we know that God loves us? Because he laid down his life for us. That's proof enough for me. I know God loves me because he looked at me and he said, there's Eric Olson. There's this kid over there. Uh, seven years old coming up to an altar. I'll take him. I love him. I'll die for him. Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. He says, here's how we perceive. How do you know God loves you? Because he died for you. That's all the proof you need. And he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. You mean we're supposed to die for other people? How's the family resemblance here? <laughs> Would you die for other people? And the Bible says, scarcely for a righteous man, we would die. But Christ laid down his life for us when we were sinners. Right. So that kind of love is incomprehensible almost. We can't even grasp it except for say, my goodness, he loved them. We ought to lay down our lives. Does that mean we die? Well, no, not necessarily, although sometimes it does. When I was a kid, there was a lady who came from Vietnam uh, Mrs. Travis was her name, and she came from Vietnam back in the 60s and told stories of things that happened over there. And fascinating. I still remember them. When I was seven or eight years old, I remember the stories. She was telling a story uh, before uh, they got there. There was a, um, one of the Army people, and they lined a whole bunch of people up in the village. They were going to shoot every other one down the line. Okay, here we go. We're going to start shooting. We're just going to shoot every other one. And down the line, there's an old fella who believed in Jesus. And he counted, and he said to the young fella next to him, he said, hey, let's trade places. And so he traded places. And then he got shot. And the young boy went free. They shot every other one. They shot him. And he, the young man that changed places came to believe in Jesus was a very powerful thing that he had experienced. Why? Because he switched places in line and he lived and the old man gave his life for him. 
right, in history, that has happened. All right, things like that have happened. Probably not for you and I, but still we lay down our lives for each other. That is, we give our life for each other. And that's just something we need to think about. When I was just going to take over this as a pastor, I had no intention of ever being a pastor, just a, a teacher. And people kept saying to me, we want a church, we want a church. And I kind of thought, well, I don't know about that. You know, I'm not sure about that. Because I'd known a lot of pastors had been treated real poorly. And uh, I said, I don't know if I want to do that. It does, doesn't look like a good idea to me. And they kept saying it, and I kept thinking about it. And finally one day, I, you know, you got to think about it. If I'm going to be a pastor, I give away every weekend for the rest of my life. Am I willing? And down one day while I was loading the wood stove, I've told this story. I've got holding a log in my hand and I'm going to throw it in the fire. And I said, okay, I'll do it the rest of my life. Threw the log in the fire and gave away every weekend the rest of my life. Why? Because we lay down our life for our brothers. We lay down our lives. That is, we give away our lives for somebody else. And that's what he's saying here. There's a kind of love. What kind of love? It lays down his life. It gives you. I'll give it to you. I'll give you my life. All right? and, and that's what Jesus did. That's how we prove that we love. 17. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need, shut us up his bowels of compassion from him. How dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. All right? So, here, if you're going to say, you know, well, we love everybody, and there's some poor folk person there that's desperate. Say, well, I hope you make out good. God bless you and all that. And uh, let me know how you make out. No, you got to do something. You got to do something. That is really one of the issues of church itself, is church itself. The fact of the matter is that people... Uh, we say, well, we're going to give them everything they want if they come to the service. Well, why would they come to a service? They don't want to come to a service. Millions of people out there, I call that church. What are you kidding? But somehow we find a way to reach out to these people. One of the issues of the church is that uh, it's hard for us just to sit here and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Come on in and get it. No. Got to do something to go out. This is one of the reasons we did the food drive. And the food drive has grown into a pretty large thing now. Why? Because we go out to them. Proof. There's a proof. And we go out to them. Well, give something. That's what old fashioned day is. We get a couple thousand visitors that come and we give them a hot dog for a penny and a drink for a penny, a piece of pie, and everything for a penny. All right? It's free. It's free. All right? And uh, why? Because uh, hereby perceive we the love of God that we can reach out to people and help them and do something for them. All right? And so the church needs to some way be active in that way. Otherwise, you just love in words. 
I love you, I love you. Do something. He says, not just in word, but in truth, in action. Take action. So love has to have action. It can't just be, I said it, now you're all set. It's got to be proof. Action shows that there is love. All right, verse 19. Everybody we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Boy, that's a freeing statement right there. <clears throat> Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. Sometimes he says you'll feel guilty. It'll be hard for you not to feel guilty. You've done something and you wish you hadn't done it and you think for maybe years in your life, oh man. Why did I do that? I wish I hadn't done that. Why did I do that? And your heart condemns you. He said, now make sure you comprehend that God is more powerful, he's greater than your heart. So he gave you a conscience to be aware of sin. But Jesus can forgive it. All right? And the ultimate story of that in the Bible is a family story called the prodigal son. Who was he? He was a son. What did he do? Give me my money. I'm out of here. Took what he wanted, spent it all, and laid with the pigs. And finally, laying there with the pigs, what does he say? I'm going home and be a servant. I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. He gets home. He says, you're my son. <laughs> Welcome home. You're my son. Welcome home. So I'm glad to have you here. I forgive you. And so uh, our confidence is uh, when we have done wrong and that old nature has pulled a fast one on us and we've done the wrong thing and we begin to, our hearts are saying, oh man, what did you do this time? What are you doing? And he said, remember, if you confess your sins, God will forgive you. And he said, he's greater than our hearts. So, verse 21, if our heart condemn us not, and we have confidence towards God, what's the purpose of it? And he's going to say, I will forgive you when you do wrong. I promise to do it. And you can be confident of that. You can believe that. You can have boundless confidence in the idea that God will forgive your sin. So when you get that confidence going, 22, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments, do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So as we build confidence in the forgiving nature of our Heavenly Father, we start to build confidence in a lot of things about him. And so we can go to him and believe and ask for things and pray for things. He says, because we keep his commandments, which are what? That we love each other and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Right? You buy things from God by obedience. You get things from God by obedience. So you obey. You do things that are pleasing and God is willing to answer our prayers. All right, verse 23. This is a commandment. You should believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Right? There it is. There's a thing. Believe in Jesus. Have a confidence in him. And love each other. Because he told us we got to do that. And he that keepeth his commandment 
dwelleth in him and he in him. Or that is God actually lives inside of us. And so our Heavenly Father says, I'll get closer to you than your father ever was. <laughs> My people were Norwegian, and they're not emotional at all. <laughs> and I see families where people love and hug me. I never saw that. They just were very stoic. All right. I remember my father hugged me once in my whole life. It's the only one I remember. My grandfather only spoke to me once in my whole life. That's just not who they were. But I have a heavenly father right here talking to me all the time, listening to me, talking to me. What a relationship it is. He says, that's what you got. He's going to dwell in you. We'll dwell in him, and we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given to us. And so we have in us a voice, spirit of voice that speaks to us, explains things to us, helps us to understand, makes us grasp these concepts in a larger way so that we can understand better what he expects us to do. So the mysticism of John is just explaining concepts in a larger, better way so we begin to have a new way to look at things and a way to grasp how the family is set up. We'll go on with chapter 4 next week. Thank you.